This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, Citizen Radio, On the Media, Counterspin, Moyers and Company, and The Young Turks. And a note to all that if you find this episode depressing, just think of it as a positive reminder of why you listen to shows like this instead of the corporate media. So now let's pick up our conversation in the studio with Jim Earl, Steve Rosenfield, Katie Lazarus, and Steph Samarano. And we're talking about Barack Obama's pretend shift to more liberty on, in the war on terror. And the big speech he gave last Thursday, and uh, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink heckled him and was thrown out because she gave him a little bit of dose of reality of what his drone policy and his Guantanamo policy and his other horrible war policies are really doing. Let's get back to our conversation. You know what, I, I just want to weigh in because I, when I, I remember when President Obama was running for office and he had the mantra about, yes, we can. And I didn't know, yes, we can use drones was <laughs> yes. what he was leading right. to. Yes, we, yes, we can. So, And I want to say that the whole idea that Medea Benjamin has this courage to be in this room and to begin to question the United States president in a room full of journalists, full of journalists who are letting her get corralled out of the room right. when she is making an important point, point for our country. Yes. And she's not a heckler. That's not the no, definition. No, we'll, no, no. We'll, we'll talk about that when that, we talk about Carol Costello. So let me just – so let's just hold this. We're going to talk about this for another 20 minutes. So um, let's move on. to So And then so, so they drag her out and then Barack Obama does that thing. Where he plays both sides of it again, right? So here he goes. He plays both sides. As they drag her out, she, he says this. You know, I think that the, uh, and I'm going off script as you might expect here. Um, People the, uh, love improv. And that's what I hate. Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm talking, this is what I'm talking about. That's a room full of freaking journalists, and they're all applauding him like that. The voice of that woman... Uh, is worth paying attention to. Except that you're not going to. <laughs> Except you're not going to pay. So he did it again. He played both sides right there. He's pretending to be on her side. She wouldn't have to scream at you if you listened to her, Barack Obama. And so that's what I'm upset about, the fact that he is being allowed to play both. It's going undetected by the mainstream media, even the left-wing media. It's going undetected the way he's playing both sides. People think that he's actually doing something, Jim. You know he's not doing anything, right? And validated. It's not just that it's going undetected. They're, they're giving him an ovation. Yes, yes. Yes, and then he got to play both sides again. Yeah, you, the, Her voice is worth listening to. You please... So uh, so then she goes on uh, uh, Carol Costello, CNN, right? So this Medea Benjamin goes on Carol Costello. And, uh, well, Carol Costello gets right to the heart of the matter at, at the top of the show. She gets right, she goes right Welcome, in. Welcome, Medea. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. So how did you get in? <laughs> That's her first question. <laughs> I like that how she did asked you? That. I like that she asked that because when I was 18, I grew up in D.C. and I snuck into the inaugural ball through three securities. This is pre-9-11. Uh-huh. But I wanted to know what she got into. <laughs> I was really proud of myself for so, doing that. Yeah, well, Carol Costello's like, I, that was you? Carol Costello's like, I can't get in this freaking thing. How did you get in? And so uh, so she had been called, she called her a heckler. So Carol Costello called her a heckler in, in, introducing her, setting up the piece. And Medea Benjamin immediately attacks. She goes, I want to take issue with that. And here's what she has to say about being called a heckler. 
Well, first I want to take objection with the term heckler because I actually had an invitation to get in and I felt compelled to speak out. I waited till the end of the speech. I didn't hear what many of us thought we were going to hear, which are significant policy changes. You clearly changes. interrupted the president, though. That would be heckling. Okay, so Carol Costello is on it. She gets right to the meat of the matter, quibbling over the term heckle. That's exactly what this is all about. First, how did you get in? Second, let's talk about heckling. And let me just say, I've been a comedian for 20 years all over the world. And what the, I've been heckled. And what that woman did wasn't heckling because hecklers very rarely impart useful information. <laughs> never, ever, never. ever have I ever seen never. someone who was so thoughtful. That's yeah. right. They don't, and they don't have pre-rehearsal -re -pre lines that they get all perfectly. Okay, so there. So she asked him about the heckle, and Medea Benjamin uh, comes back. Well, I don't call it heckling. I call it uh, speaking out because the president is not implementing policies that we need to see changed. I've written books on these issues, including one called Drone Warfare. I go around talking to people around the country uh, and around the world. I went to Pakistan recently meeting with... Vic so she had to get her out her bona fides because Carol Costello didn't. She called her a heckler. She didn't say, oh, she's written this book. She's done all this other stuff. She uh, And she's you know respected speaker all over the world. She didn't say any of that stuff. She just called her a heckler. So she had to get it out. And then here comes Carol Costello. Even as if the president was changing his tone on Gitmo and on drones. So you were kind of getting what you wanted anyway. So why go into this speech and heckle him when he's kind of talking in a way that you should welcome? So she just explained to her why she wasn't a heckler. She couldn't wait to call her a heckler again. And she goes, you know, he's changing his tone about the good time. Mo. And yeah, but he's, she, he's not changing his policies, you a-hole. Well, she goes, why would you heckle him if he's going to kind of go in your way anyway? Well, why don't you ask yourself that question, Carol? Why would she heckle if she was getting what she wanted? Maybe because she wasn't getting what she wanted. Maybe that's why. I don't object to, to her heckling, and I think it is heckling, as long as you call okay. what the media is doing, being sheep, yes. and, and really not doing their job. So, like, what's annoying here is that this Costello can can call her heckling and then not take her self to task. Yes. When it's like, well, what is your job? You're basically telling her to get in line and be appreciative that he said anything at all, which is what Jim was saying before. So she says, why did you heckle him if Barack Obama sounded like he was changing his tone on all that stuff? that you wanted and here she explains so here she's going to explain it to you carol here's what the president wasn't doing that he was supposed to do ready here we go well we didn't hear the policy changes that had been predicted for example that he would take the drones out of the hands of the cia a non-military organization that has been killing so many innocent people that he would stop the authorization of signature strikes which means killing people on the basis only of suspicious behavior that's led to the killing of many innocent people uh... he did not say that he was going to begin the release uh, immediately of the 86 people who've been cleared for release by the Department of Defense, Justice, FBI, CIA, Homeland Security. So that's all that stuff that, sh that the president, the White House, had signaled to people like her and the media that they were going to do in that speech, that they were going to do all those things, and then they didn't do any of those things, and so that's why she started yelling. And so, and she just explained it to Carol Costello. So now Carol Costello, even though she doesn't know anything about this story, which she doesn't, she doesn't know. Then uh, this woman, Medea Benjamin, knows way more about the drone strike problem than she does. Right. 
so here's what Carol Costello says after she had explained the CIA, Homeland Security. But all he of these have things that you're talking about week. don't have simple solutions, and the president just can't act on his own. <laughs> this is a reporter. These aren't there aren't simple solutions. So I guess the rule in America is the, is if there isn't a simple solution for a problem, you can't talk about it. You have to shut up about it. Remember how there wasn't a simple solution for slavery, so Abraham Lincoln quietly killed everybody. Remember how that happened? All the people fighting in the Civil War, they quietly shot each other. They didn't yell about it because there wasn't a simple solution. That doesn't make this is a reporter. That's a reporter for CNN. Carol <coughs> Costello wants Medea Benjamin to shut up about this big problem because there isn't a simple solution. Uh, and she should shut up about it, especially when the guy with the power to fix these problems is within earshot. That's when she should especially be sh- quiet, right? That's what she's saying to her. Yes. You know, Carol Costello is just saying, uh, shut up, Medea Benjamin. Yes. You're a critical thinker. As all news people say, the motto is just really shut the F up. You know, in, in England, they have a question hour where where people are actually allowed to ask MPs questions. Whoa. Yes. You know, I mean, so like yeah. the reason that I I can empathize with this woman, what what I still consider it heckling. She was just an intelligent person yeah, speaking right. out. Is that like there's no forum. There's zero forum for you to speak out and you can't depend on the demos. You can't depend on journalists to actually ask legitimate questions. So that's no. why she was like That's exactly right. forced Well, to because do this. she's going to be up against people like Carol Costello who buy who bought everything hook line and sinker what Barack Obama hey he changed the he didn't change it she bought it the news people are horrible Medea Benjamin knows more about this story than the reporters do and she's actually inform Medea Benjamin is the one informing the viewers in this situation I, I I wish that they put how much all of these people made like what their salaries were like I wish they put uh, with their titles like the CNN yes, person like yes. oh she makes 250 or 350 right. or 400,000 dollars a year she makes more than a quarter million dollars Carol Costello she makes more than an I mean Entry level writer on a sitcom. So here is so now guess go. So you think it couldn't get worse for Carol Costello? It gets a little bit worse. Here we go. So again, you know, I I asked, I post the question on my Facebook page. Oh, please report to us what they said on your Facebook page, journalist. And, And ask them what they wanted to ask you. And a lot of them said that you were hurting your own cause because one, you appeared rude to the President of the United States. And two, you just seemed um, a a little crazy. So, Carol Costello, is that what passes for journalism over at CNN when you pass along insults to your guests that people left on your Facebook page? Because if that counts as journalism, I've got a little journalism for you. Why didn't you go ahead and repeat all the stuff when they called Wolf Blitzer a uh, faggot on the on CNN's Facebook page? Who, who by about, the way... How is... about the people on my Facebook page, Carol, who say that you're a shitty reporter and a corporate tool... <laughs> And you don't, can we, can we all, is this reporting now? They say you're a bad reporter. Go ahead, Kate. Kate. Well, uh, no, I was just going to comment on Wolf Blitzer and what an idiot he is. And you should watch the Jeopardy, the Jeopardy thing. Did you see that? Yes. He doesn't know where Jesus was born. But, but in terms of, of her going to the lowest common denominator of insults you can say to women, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're you're aggressive. You're crazy. should therefore dismiss you. Yeah, so here's here's how she wraps it up. uh, Her her next question was just a picture of uh, somebody's breakfast. 
that she found on totally, her Facebook I, page. I want to yes. go onto her Facebook page and just put up like pictures of children, nieces so, and nephews, not even my own. Maybe you'll report it because that's why that's that's what reporting happens. Here's here's how she ends the interview. Well, I've gotten a fabulous response, and I think killing innocent people with drones is rude. I think keeping people who are innocent in indefinite detention for 11 years is rude. Uh, I think not. Uh, uh, respecting the lives of Muslim people is rude. I think not apologizing to the families of innocent people who are killed is rude. Okay, she's making her K. Wow, that's a pretty good K. Hey, Carol, by the way, you think what I did was rude? This is what is actually rude. And you think it's sunk in for Carol Costello? Uh, I don't um, think so. There are a so. lot of rude things about our policy. Speaking out is actually not rude, but it's the basis of a democratic society where people use their voices to try to make our country better and our policies I don't, I don't think many more in line with the rule of law. Okay, so she's laid it out to her. This is what you're supposed to do if you're an engaged citizen. And Carol Costello... I disagree with you, but I would think that some Americans, at least, would say there's a time and a place. <laughs> yes, and that time is never on CNN, and that place is never on CNN. And all day it seems we've been in between a past and future town we are nowhere and it's now we are nowhere and it's now in like a 10 minute dream in the passenger seat while the world was flying by i haven't been gone there We randomly turned on CNN and big mistake, big mistake. We laughed at the introduction, but still didn't think it was going to be what it was, was the woman was like, up next, we're going to host a debate on uh, Eric Snowden. Was he a traitor or a hero? Yeah. You're about to hear from both both sides. sides. Did you even use the word hero? Yeah. I thought it was like, is he a person or a traitor? No, the direct quote was, um, is Edward Snowden a hero or traitor? You're about to hear from both sides. So both sides ended up being uh, former CIA, Bob Bear. I think he was the one who was on it. I don't even know. Both sides were against him. Yeah, both sides were against the two opponents they had on both hate Edward Snowden. Where And literally, Bob Bear is on CNN, first of all, calling China the enemy, and then suggested Snowden is on China's payroll. Right. So he suggested, and so I'm like, oh, I guess it's going to be the other guy that's pro uh, Snowden and he's like he is arrogant why is he in China no, and I'm like, so oh. he, he said quote that Snowden showed terrible judgment and stupidity and by stupidity. going to China both sides one thinks he works for China the other one thinks he's stupid and then Bob Bear said he's not Daniel Ellsberg he has Dan- Daniel Ellsberg said he is Daniel Ellsberg he hasn't exposed a crime which goes back to what we were saying it's like what happens when the US government legalizes crime right right uh he's still a whistleblower but it was just so nuts where I'm like it kills me knowing that most of America watches these news networks because it's like you think you're hearing both sides and it's like if you want to have two ex-CIA officials on to shit talk Snowden fine you do that shit all the time whatever but don't fucking frame it like 
it's any sort of debate. Yeah, and don't obsess over these minds. Like, I don't give a shit why Snowden went to Hong Kong. I don't. You know, like, uh, there's all these kind of speculation that, like, he thought that it would be harder to extradite him there and it maybe it won't be that hard and whatever. I don't care about that small detail. I mean, something else we should be debating is, you know, I've heard these like internet fucking tough guys be like, oh, if he's so brave, uh, why'd he run away? Well, we could be debating why he ran away or what I think would be way more important. Why why aren't we debating that if someone exposes a crime, they feel like they have to leave their family and go to China? Why? Because whistleblowers are in jail right now. Yeah, I mean, Greenwald also brought up a good point where he's like, what country would have been safe for him to go to? I mean, the United States can pretty much go into any country and pull whoever they want. Right, but I mean, the, I guess the point I was trying to make is, again, it's this false... Um, Sort of like we shouldn't even be debating why he went to Hong Kong unless you have evidence uh, that shows he was a traitor or giving it. uh, That's what I mean. Like if there was actual evidence, of course, I want to hear this actual evidence about anything. You give it to Glenn Greenwald. But but to have this trial in the media with totally uninformed former CIA officials saying stuff like he might be on China's payroll. Who knows? And and you're just planting and that's classic CIA, right? You're just planting that because now the way that gets turned into dinnertime conversation is like, well, I heard he might be on the payroll. Yeah. And then then the next day at work, it's like, I heard he's on the payroll. Right. And it's like, holy shit. Um, Well, why would he be in China if he didn't have anything to do with the Chinese government? When when the story should be, why, when you expose (laughs) a crime, are you so scared for your safety that you have to leave your home and country? That's what everyone should be saying. Not why did he go to China? Why does he feel like he has to go to China? That's the story. I even saw really gross stuff in liberal circles about people saying stuff. Again, you know, obsessing with the personality of Edward Snowden. Well, how does a guy who doesn't even get his high school diploma end up getting a high paying job with the with you know oh, contractors and stuff like that you. which is such a fucking horrible class thing to say and it's that to me is just it, it's revealing not just on you know the conservative side when they obsess over the personality but on the liberal side too i mean whether you're just talking about him as, as a hero or or saying like how did he get such a high paying job or something like that um you should be talking about the larger issues try to This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, draw me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. On Thursday, one of the suspects in the grisly Woolwich, England murder of soldier Lee Rigby was formally charged. The broad daylight killing last week was crude and bloody, but perhaps more shocking than the crime itself was the terror suspect's invitation to a crowd of 
horrified witnesses to video him declaring his jihadist motivation. The only reason we have killed this man today is because mu Muslims are dying daily by British soldiers. And this British soldier is one, is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We could have played more of the screed, but that'll do. Suffice to say, the man grasped a knife and a cleaver in his blood-smeared hands as he ranted into one or more cell phone cameras. In the background, crumpled onto the street, was Rigby's body. It was all aftermath. The crime itself was not photographed, but as Alfred Hitchcock well understood, in video, the mind fills in the blanks, amplifying, not softening, the horror. The blood and the blades spoke ghastly volumes, and in the ensuing week, TV channels in Britain and the British Press Complaints Commission received hundreds of objections to the images of the Woolwich suspect that were endlessly displayed in the coverage of the attack. All British newspapers used the images online and off. On television, ITV News and the BBC both showed footage of the bloody diatribe. Only Sky News refrained from airing it because the editor said it was too distressing. Yes, according to the physician-patient relationship that governs much serious journalism, Sky News decided first to do no harm. This was forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz speaking after a mass shooting in Germany in 2009. If you don't want to pro propagate more mass murders, don't start the story with sirens blaring. At the time, The Guardian's press critic Charlie Brooker intercut the psychiatrist's advice with contemporaneous examples of the British press ignoring the best practices at every turn. Don't have photographs of the killer. The 17-year-old's three-hour rampage ended in his own death. Don't make this 24-7 coverage. The German Chancellor is about to give her reaction. We'll bring that to you live. Do everything you can not to make uh, the body count the lead story. Carnage in the classroom, 16 people are dead. Not to make the killer some kind of anti-hero. Dressed in black combat gear, the gunman opened fire at random. Four years later, it's an easy stunt to reproduce. Two men got out of the car and carried out a savage attack. The two men uh, hacking uh, at the victim with a knife. The men told witnesses their savage attack was an attempt to start a war on the streets. There would seem to be powerful conflicting interests at play. On the one hand is the public's right to know. A terror incident is a terror incident, and if the media are physicians, they're not nannies sweetening medicine to make it more easily go down. On the other hand, there are genuine risks to sensationalizing coverage. First, there is the competitive impulse to exploit the horror and the victims for more titillation than illumination, which degrades the media and audience alike. More ominous is the likelihood of encouraging copycats and other attention seekers to commit similar atrocities for the very purpose of dominating the news. Terrorism is, after all, about creating terror, and terror cannot spread in a publicity vacuum. Nor, by the way, can violent reaction. In England, some combination of the murder and the 24-7 repetition of the murder suspect's video defiance triggered street violence by the ultra-right nationalists, the English Defence League. Islam is not a religion of peace. Islam is fascist and it's violent and we've had enough. And individual expressions of rabid racism and xenophobia like 
this woman on YouTube. This is our country. We belong here. Them don't. It's about time they all got off back where they come from. Let's assume those sentiments were simmering long before Woolwich. But let's also think about what brought them to full boil, a relentless video loop assaulting the psyche of a nation. Now, that's not an argument for suppressing news, but it is an argument for proportion and perspective, for being circumspect as opposed to hysterical. And it can be done. In fact, due to a wrinkle of British law called subjudice, media there are forbidden to print or air anything which could prejudice the proceedings of an act of criminal investigation or trial. A piece of the Woolwich suspect's bloody tirade, in fact, the very part we played at the beginning, was explicitly self-incriminating. So that part, the British press simply didn't play. On NBC Nightly News on July 9th, anchor Brian Williams made an announcement. There is consumer product news tonight. The folks at Hamburger Helper say they'd like to be thought of more as just helpers, since more and more people are eating chicken, and there's a helper for that, too. General Mills say they just want to help dinner in America. Viewers were left to wonder what else might have been in the press release. Early the next day, NBC's Today Show, also in the news department, brought viewers the news that the company Dyson has a new floor cleaning device. The company founder, who Matt Lauer explained comes up with all kinds of cool products, was brought on. And at one point, Savannah Guthrie exclaimed that she was sure the thing would be, quote, another one of those things where we think, yes, why did we wait so long for this invention? Close quote. For those viewers searching the screen for a toll-free number, Lauer clarified. We don't do this as a commercial. We do it because there is a cool factor yeah. attached to your products. And when other people develop cool products, we'll bring those on as well. The lesson seems to be buying advertising is for suckers. Time again to talk with Marty Kaplan. Loyal members of Mortgage and Company know him as one of the keenest and most sensible observers of politics, the press, and culture. He runs the Norman Lear Center at the University of Southern California, an independent promontory from which he lets his mind range wherever his insatiable curiosity takes him. Most recently, Brazil. For several weeks, the largest country in Latin America has been shaken by a massive citizen uprising, protesting political corruption, economic injustice, poor health care, inadequate schools, lousy mass transit, a crumbling infrastructure, and get this, 
billions blown on sports. That's right. Vast numbers of citizens in this soccer-crazy nation are outraged that their government is spending billions of dollars to host the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Summer Olympics. This in the land of Pele. They're even up in arms over the $74 million deal signed by the young soccer star Neymar da Silva. Crowds have been shouting, Brazil, wake up! A teacher is worth more than Neymar. Being no one's fool, Neymar has sided with the protesters and written on Facebook that their mobilization inspires him on the playing field. Surveying this tumult, Marty Kaplan recently expressed wonder at this people's uprising and challenged us, his fellow Americans, let's be Brazil. That's when I called him and asked him to join me on the show. By the way, his work has just won two awards from the Los Angeles Press Club, including Best Columnist. Marty Kaplan, welcome. Thanks very much. And congratulations on those awards. Thank you. You recently confessed to outrage envy. What's that about? It's my feeling that what happened in Brazil, which is so encouraging about citizens taking their destiny in their own hands, is not happening here. We have uh, unemployment and hunger and crumbling infrastructure and a uh, tax system out of whack and a corrupt uh, political system. Why are we not also taking to the streets is the question. And I want us to. You wrote, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. So are we not paying attention? We are paying attention to the wrong things. We are paying attention to infotainment, which is being spoon-fed to us. And sadly, frankly, we are enabling because we love the stuff. The infotainment narrative of life in America, you call? Yes. The tragedy of journalism now is that it is demand-driven, and when you ask people what they want, we're like one of those rats that have a lever to push, and cocaine comes out, and once that happens one time, they'll stay there till they die, until more of the drug appears. We can't help loving lurid stories and suspense and uh, the kind of sex and violence which the news is now made up of. But you go on beyond the infotainment story. You say our spirits have been sickened by the toxins baked into our political system. Powerful sentence. Our spirits have been sickened by the toxins baked into our political system. The control of our democracy by money is shocking and deserves the same kind of response to corruption that it got in Brazil. And instead, we have become used to it. We don't see a way around it. There are voices, there are people like Larry Lessig that are trying to change the campaign finance system, the way media plays into that, but they are voices in the wilderness. And we, the public, have wised up and decided either not to pay attention at all or the media have decided not to force us to pay attention. And if we do pay attention, you can't live with the knowledge that our democracy is now so corrupt that it is unchangeable. So if it is true, as you say, that our tax code is the least progressive in the industrial world, that we witnessed the most massive transfer of wealth in history, which is destroying our middle class, that tuition is increasingly unaffordable and retirement increasingly unavailable, that the banks that stole trillions of dollars of Americans' worth have not only gone unpunished, they're still at it. Why are we not at the barricades? 
I suspect among your viewers there were people who are outraged and want to be at the barricades. The problem is we have been taught to be helpless and jaded rather than to feel that we are empowered and can make a difference. Taught by whom? By those of us who report the news of bad things happening? Well, the stuff that is being reported on the news tends not to be the kind of stuff that we need to know about in order to be outraged. Climate change is one of the great tests of journalism. There was the New York Times headline about uh, the first time that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached 400 uh, parts per million, which the Times said that carbon dioxide had reached a level not seen in millions of years. Yeah. My jaw fell. You would think that that would cause a worldwide stir. And instead, it was a one-day story. On to the next thing. As you know, President Obama recently made a major speech in which he announced a new plan to tackle climate change. All three cable networks turned to the president's speech, but then they cut away from it well before it was intended to end. Uh, Fox News cut away, saying the remarks could be streamed online, and then they turned to a guest critical of the president. The planet is warming, and human activity is contributing to it. But that is not the full story. <laughs> we're going to stream the remainder of the president's remarks live on foxnews.com, and in the meantime, we'll be, we're joined now with some reaction. Uh, Chris Horner is the senior fellow at the Center for Energy and Environment at the Competitive uh, Enterprise Institute and the author of the book Red Hot Lies. Fox's host, Megyn Kelly, wondered aloud about whether the country even needed to tackle the problem. And CNN's Wolf Blitzer cut in soon after. All right, so the president uh, making uh, a major, major address on climate change. I want to bring in Jim Acosta. And, uh, president's got some uh, important news he's about to release. And then Wolf continued to talk well, over the president's remarks. What do you make of that? The meta message is more interesting to journalism than the message itself. People, the meta message? The meta message is, here's grist for combat between different factions. How is it going to play out? Rather than the message, which is, here's what's happening to our climate. Here's what we have to do to prevent it. That stuff risks being boring, but combat is never boring. What they don't know how to do is to talk about, well, what are our options here, America? Uh, how do we mitigate the effects of climate change? Instead, they're refighting all these old battles, and that kind of combat is what they can do. The Sunday talk shows did something else, which is to completely ignore it. I mean, they probably had John McCain and Lindsey Graham on for the 27th time each, instead of dealing with what was the most important speech about climate change ever given given by a sitting president. And Think Progress, the uh, progressive website, published an infographic which pointed out that, as you say, Sunday's news shows ignored Obama's climate plan. Late-night comedy shows picked up the slack. The Daily Show gave three minutes and 29 seconds to the president. The Late Show gave one minute, 33 seconds. The Tonight Show gave one minute and two seconds. Meet the Press, zero seconds. Fox News, zero seconds. ABC This Week, zero seconds. Face the nation, zero seconds. State of the Union on CNN, zero 
seconds. Yeah, but I bet they kept us informed about the phony IRS scandal. They have stuff which they think pushes the buttons that makes people emotional and angry, and they just find climate change a snooze. They find guns a snooze. Look at what happened with Sandy Hook. Look at what happened with Hurricane Sandy and climate change. We are capable of turning away because we get bored with one thing and need the, the next. At the time of the, of the Sandy Hook shootings, uh, you wrote about the learned helplessness uh, that seemed to permeate that situation. Talk about that a moment. We have had the unfortunate experience of being outraged, being Brazilians, trying to get something done, and watching as the dysfunctional system that we are forced to live under destroys momentum and creates stasis or adds power to the already powerful rather than enabling reform. We have, for example, on uh, Capitol Hill, a system which is built on the need to create ads, narratives, phony reality about members who are running for office. And they need to finance that because our television stations make a killing on that, especially in the swing states. And so the only way they can finance it is by doing quid pro quo deals with special interests. So when uh, the Newtown tragedy happened, my instinct was, yes, I know Obama's going to make a great speech and the polls are going to be 99%, but it's going to be business as usual. Our hearts will be broken because the system is simply unresponsive and incapable of reform. You watch that happen enough times and you decide, why bother? You have to be someone who just fell off the turnip truck to think that popular outrage can make a difference. The truth is that we can make a difference. We can change the way campaigns are financed. We can change the electoral college. You name it. We can do things, but because we have been taught that we will be ineffective and fail, it seems like the gesture of a rube to be hopeful. What intrigued me was that the Brazilians first sparked over an increase in the bus fare in Sao Paulo, and then it just spread the bus fare. Yet when recently the Metropolitan Transit Authority here in New York raised the transit fare, it just, there was any, wasn't even a ripple on the surface. Because the class that produces news has the kind of incomes that can absorb those kinds of changes. The news industry is now part of the privileged elite. They are not the scrappy adversaries that uh, one would hope they would be fighting for the little guy. They are the man. And if public transportation costs a little more, the studio is going to send a car for them anyway. The problem is that corporate self-interest plays itself out in the content of news. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. Just 
Jonathan Alter recently wrote a book called The Center Holds Obama and His Enemies, and in it there is a great deal of uh, interesting anecdotes about Roger Ailes, who runs Fox News Channel, of course. Apparently Rupert Murdoch thinks he's a little bit off, uh, but he thinks, well, on the other hand, the guy makes me a lot of money, which he does, to be fair to Roger Ailes. He does his job well at Fox News, riling people up. Um, but he does have um, interesting proclivities. And so Murdoch is quoted as saying, convinced that the whole News Corp building was bugged, Roger Ailes was apparently. Roger came in over the weekend to work in the only room that he thought was secure, a supply closet. <laughs> now that's Murdoch telling senior staffers that that's what Ailes is doing. Okay, so that's crazy. That's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It is. Um, <laughs> how does he know that? Now, Obviously there was a camera in there. That's how he knows it. Now, but, if, but you run the place, why don't you debug it? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but the guy who thinks that is the guy who bugs other people. Mm -hmm. He assumes that everybody is doing what he's doing. So he thinks, well, if I'm bugging people, they must be bugging me. Yeah. So uh, we're just getting started here. Uh, next uh, is this revelation. Ailes trying to bombproof glass for his office because he thought homosexuals outside News Corp headquarters on 6th Avenue might shoot at him. He settled for drawing the blinds instead. <laughs> it's cheaper. Jesus, that's a crazy person. Yeah, that's a crazy yeah, person. It's crazy. It's a certified like crazy person. Like, gay activists are going to shoot Roger Ailes? Through his windows. In, through his window on the sixth floor? Are, are, is there a lot of gay terrorists running around that we're not Shooting familiar with? from the ground? And just yeah, and how they rent a room across the street or something, I guess. No, no, this guy is like, like clinically paranoid. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. Well, running through it, so there's the, the, if you are worried about bugs, you're probably bugging people. There's that, and there's obviously the paranoia. Like, at some point, I guess, he's, he's riled up so many people, he's been involved in so many ridiculous things that I think that there is some actual paranoia. But somebody who is this worried about being watched and people knowing what you're doing is up to some incredibly shady shit, and not just the bugging people. Like, he's closing his blinds. He doesn't want people to see him on his computer and things like that. God knows what he does in his private time. Well, we do, we, well, it's not just God. We know he has, <laughs> he bought a, a, a paper in upstate New York uh, for himself, not related to News Corp or Fox News, and he wound up tracking all the people who worked for him, and he got, and uh, and they like they'd be out to lunch, and they would see a private security guy from Fox News, and they'd be like, "What the hell are you doing here?" And they knew the guy. They're like, "Bob, what are you doing here?" It's like, "Oh, sorry, Roger had me track you." Okay, <laughs> and then Ailes would know conversations they had in private over lunch. Okay, so it's. Is he up to shady stuff and is he bugging other people? I mean, read the story about the upstate New York or watch our YouTube video on it from about a year ago. Yeah, but there's more madness. Ailes demanded the security throw a Muslim looking man out of the building, and the man turned out to be a janitor. Mm. No, now, this is the guy who runs Fox News. You think that Fox News, that we're, that's not permeating throughout the building, that Muslims are, to be, are dangerous and should be discriminated against? Where was this story from? It's from Jonathan Alter's book, The oh, Center Holes. Right, okay. right. So, I mean, here's a guy who, who sees a guy he thinks looks Muslim and immediately throws him out of the building without asking questions. Turns out he works for him, right? Yeah. Now, that guy is not going to give out an impression to his co-workers that perhaps if they were to demonize Muslims, it might not be such a bad thing. It might be fairly rational. Because yeah. if you see someone who even looks Muslim, I mean, you, they should be escorted out of the premises. And then tracked. Right. So, and again, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs on the paranoia. And apparatchiks monitored 
their email. Uh, this is what uh, the people that worked on their emails were concerned about, according to Walter's book. Apparatchiks monitored their email like the Stasi and wreaked vengeance at his command. And now, uh, I know people who worked at Fox News, and in private conversations with me, they have confirmed not the Stasi stuff or anything like that, but that if you cross Roger Ailes or News Corp, there would be consequences. And they were very scared and warned me, hey, listen, don't go after Ailes that much because he hires people to look into you, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you worked at, at News Corp or Fox News, they're scared to death of them. They have this another room called the Brain Room, et cetera, at, at Fox News. And and that's apparently like no one else can access it except the intelligence community within Fox News and Ailes and people are afraid of what's going on in that room. Yeah, C crazy man, crazy man. And then finally, uh, he has a theory as to why people don't like him. Oh, okay, good. Why is okay. that? Is All it right. because he thinks the gay people are going to shoot him from Sixth Avenue? Is it because he hates Demonizes Muslims? Muslims. And, uh, is yeah. it because of every hateful like thing Fox News has ever said? Spreads misinformation to millions of Americans right. on a nightly basis. Mm -hmm. No, undermines democracy right. at every turn. No, shockingly, it turns out that's not the reason. No, okay. here's well, the reason: hmm. they hate me because I'm fat. <laughs> I think we love fat people. Uh huh. I didn't know that's why people hated people. No, like, like that's why I hate Rush Limbaugh. That's not why I hate oh, Roger Ailes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, so I have a strong opinion, and so a lot of people hate me online, right? Mm -hmm. I never once thought, it's because I'm fat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this might be the craziest guy in America. Yeah. And he runs Fox News, head of Fox News, and gets paid millions of dollars to do so. It's too bad that uh, like Chris Christie's not popular. Mm -hmm. Or Fat Albert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris yeah. Christie, only yeah. at this point, literally the most popular governor in America. Right. And imagine. People love if, Family Guy. Imagine if people right. didn't hate him for being fat. God, <laughs> he'd have like 98% popularity. Yeah, he'd be the most popular person ever. <laughs> no, right. but, but how, really fast, how perfect is this, though? That you have, like, the information that Fox News puts across is disseminated out to all the people all over. Men in Kansas have these crazy beliefs about Islam taking over America. Like, he's creating this insanity all over the world. And, like, you'd think. The way it tends to work in movies is that at the top of it is this mastermind who knows exactly what he's doing. But no, it's actually someone who's just as crazy as the people at the bottom end of the pyramid. That's, that's, yeah. that's a point. yeah. And what's fascinating, that's a great point by John, is because the crazy filters down that pyramid. Mm -hmm. Like we've turned a third of this country nuts because one insane person happens to be running an incredibly powerful cable news yep. channel. One fat insane person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> that, the that, insane that, I don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> have you seen that guy's <laughs> weight? Woo. Uh -huh. I hate guys like that. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, there's a debate going on over journalism in America. The Pew Research Center recently wrote bleakly about the future of journalism. 
The other side of it, Marty, is that some people are saying these are the glory days of journalism because there's so much information out there online if you have access. And you yourself recently wrote, and I'm quoting, the best journalism in the world from plenty of sources is available online, often for no cents a day, and we can access it in video and audio as well and from anywhere at any time. So where do you come down? And as long as you are a critical thinker, as long as you could sort the stuff that's reliable from the crud, as long as you understand that people who propagate information have interests, and so you can understand that you know this incredibly popular website is also the mouthpiece for this party. To be able to do that requires exposure to enough quality journalism so that you learn to tell the difference between the stuff that's being hawked in the bazaar that uh, is intriguing and probably only partly accurate, between that and stuff which where the facts are verified. We have had instance after instance in the last several months of stories in which it's the pressure to be first to say something before anyone else has completely overridden the pressure to check is it accurate and valid. And this is happening to the prestige outlets. They are not taking the time because they have this bizarre notion that being first in the world of journalism when microseconds count, it's like being a, a micro trader on Wall Street, that you're gonna make or lose zillions by having those bragging rights. And in fact, the next day, they buy full page ads in the New York Times saying, we were first to get this. They don't buy an ad when they say, we were first and wrong. Come back to cable for a moment, because as you know, the cable, the three major cable outlets, MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN, have been giving a lot of attention to the Trayvon Martin story. Yesterday, huge day in the George Zimmerman trial. Coming up, a crucial day in the George Zimmerman trial. The George Zimmerman trial is eating up a lot of time on cable television. And the trial that's got American in America in trance. We are watching with great interest. The jury is not yet seated. As soon as this trial begins in earnest, we will take you there. It's a good story, by the way. Would they be doing this if people weren't watching? No, uh, they are both creating and responding to demand. But what they're not doing is exercising journalism. What they're doing is they're part of the entertainment industry. They're providing content. Journalism, in principle, is set apart because it has a notion of what's important, not just interesting. And in a dream world, journalists would make important stuff interesting, that they would use the same kind of techniques they use in covering the Trayvon Martin uh, case to make stuff like climate change just as compelling. You've been following the debate between Glenn Greenwald, who broke the Edward Snowden story, and NBC's David Gregory, who asked, well, let's listen to what David Gregory asked Glenn Greenwald on Meet the Press. Um, to the extent that you have aided and abetted Snowden, even in his current movements, why shouldn't you, Mr. Greenwald, be charged with a crime? I think it's pretty extraordinary that anybody who would call themselves a journalist would publicly muse about whether or not other journalists should be charged with felonies. The assumption in your question, David, is completely without evidence, the idea that I've aided and abetted him in any way. The scandal that arose in Washington before our stories began was about the fact that the Obama administration is trying to criminalize investigative journalism by going through the, the emails and phone records of AP reporters, accusing a Fox News journalist of the theory that you just embraced, being a 
a co-conspirator with felony in felonies for working with sources. If you want to embrace that theory, it means that every investigative journalist in the United States who works with their sources, who receives classified information, is a criminal. And it's precisely those theories and precisely that climate that has become so menacing in the United States. It's why the New Yorker's Jane Mayer said investigative reporting has come to a standstill, her word, as a result of the theories that you just referenced. Well, the question of who's a journalist may be up to a debate with regard to what you're doing. And of course, anybody who's watching this understands I was asking a question. That question has been raised by lawmakers as well. I'm not embracing anything, uh, but obviously I take your point. The assumption of the question is that there's some dictionary somewhere that says what journalism is. The truth is that journalism, like a number of other things, is socially constructed. We enter into a contract through history and based on class and evidence of what journalism is or is not. Things get ruled in or ruled out all the time. And the reasons they're ruled in or out is not because some school of journalism, some professor says, well, here's the yardstick and it is or it isn't. The, the way in which things get ruled in or not is practice what actually happens. So if David Gregory can ask a question and justify it by say, some in Congress are asking that question, that rules out nothing. Some in Congress are morons and those people will say anything. And as long as you have the ability to do the some say game and call yourself a journalist and be in a mainstream, uh, marquee platform, then you are tugging at what the definition of journalism is. And I think it's entirely appropriate for Glenn Greenwald or anyone else to tug right back and say, no, what you have done changes the terms of the debate. Here's where I stand and let's fight it out. Let's not let the imprimatur of some corporate uh, trademark say that this defines what journalism is. So when Glenn Greenwald says, top officials are lying to our faces about government spying. Is that journalism or is it prosecution? Is he a journalist or is he an activist? I think there is a credible case that journalism is activism. That, <laughs> that if you as a journalist uh, cover climate change by saying, well, some say this and some say that, you're not being a journalist, you're being a tool of the people who want to intimidate journalism from covering evidence and the truth. So when Glenn Greenwald says that lying is going on, uh, I don't think you can rule that out because of the activist nature of journalism. It either is true or not true. Let's settle it on those merits, not on the question of does he have the credential to be able to do that. It does seem to me that the First Amendment guarantees us the right to draw a conclusion on the evidence from the evidence that we have gathered. Yeah, and unfortunately, the especially the right has learned to game the system and to say, no, no, journalism is not that. Journalism is we report, you decide, the phony slogan of Fox News. So giving people alleged evidence and letting them draw alleged conclusions is in the interests of people who want to throw sand in your face and work the ref so that they are softened up and afraid to say, here is the conclusion. So your point about the Trayvon Martin trial, about uh, Paula Dean, whom we haven't even discussed, uh, about what you call the race, crime, and porn axis in 
tabloid news, cable news. Your point is that it distracts us from and drives out attention to the problems that will take us down if we don't tackle them? Watch the birdie over here, not, not the corruption over there. That's what circuses are about, is to distract us and make us happy while we're being distracted. The challenge is not only to give us the information that we should be paying attention to and to do it in a way which keeps our attention, the challenge is also what do we as citizens do with that? And I think there's an aspect of journalism which is afraid of taking that extra step and empowering citizens or covering the citizens who have empowered themselves to try to make a difference. But when we do that, Marty, we run into what you wrote about recently, informed citizen disorder, ICD. Now, for the benefit of my viewers who haven't read this, tell me what you mean by informed citizen disorder. Uh, ever since I was in junior high school, I was taught that to be a good citizen meant you needed to know what was going on in your country and in your world. You should read the paper. You should pay attention to the news. That's part of your responsibility of being an American. And the problem, especially in recent years, is the more informed I am, the more uh, despondent I am. Because day after day, there is news which drives me crazy, and I want to see the public rise up in outrage and say, no, you can't do that, banks. You can't do that, corporations. You can't do that, polluters. You have to stop and pay attention to the laws, or we're going to change the laws that every time that doesn't happen, and I keep learning each day the same thing, something bad happened and nothing was done about it. That's the news. The more that that's the case, the sadder one is when you consume all that news. So it, the, all the incentives are perverse. The way to be happy, to avoid this despondency, is to be oblivious to it all, to live in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So given all that we've talked about and all you're writing about, where do you come out? Are you an optimist or a pessimist about what's happening to us? I have children. I have to be an optimist. The globe has children. We have to be optimists. There is no choice. What is the alternative? If you are a pessimist, well, the most you can do, I suppose, is medicate yourself with uh, the latest blockbuster and uh, some sugar, salt, and fat that's being marketed to you. The only responsible thing that you can do is say that individuals can make a difference and I will try, we will try to, to make that. And I'm under no illusion that uh, I can ignite some national wave of protest, but as more and more cities become more and more unhappy with what their corrupt government is doing, maybe a critical mass builds. Hey, Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, that was a really difficult episode to listen to, just to be honest. I had uh, been following what was happening to Lindy West just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a maniac of Citizen Radios, and they, they speak about that, and they're friends with her, and they've had her on to talk about it. 
And yeah, it was just infuriating listening to that list of, of things. And it's one of the things I, I despise about the internet, although I, I appreciate and respect the need for anonymity when it comes to certain things, uh, even in you know day-to-day life, but also online. I also hate that it's, it's so often the weapon of cowards. Which brings me to the idea that I had. It's not a, it's not a new idea. The, the message that I've heard and that I'd, I'd like to share with you, I should say, is that this is where white privilege that I have as a white man, right, you know, directly corresponds with this problem of rape culture, which is what can I as a white man do about it, aside from, you know, teach my son that, about consent, about to respect women, and that rape is bad, and to act myself in that way. And it's what Jamie Kilstein of Citizen Area often talks about, which is, which is standing up to the bros in the world. You know, it's summertime, the short skirts are out, and the, you know, all, then all of a sudden men go nuts. And, you know, it's trendy in a environment if you're just hanging out with your, with your guy friends, you know, to talk shit about women, right? It's just something that guys always tend to do. And I used to do it too, not really meaning anything other than, oh yeah, talking about women like they're pieces of meat and stuff, because that's what guys do, right? And as I've gotten older and matured into the values and the type of person I actually want to be, that's where I, as a white man, can actually make a difference in culture. Or if I'm hanging out with my friends or my coworkers or whoever, and they start treating and talking about women in a way that that degrades them, I can stand up and I can say something. I can stop somebody in the street and tell them, hey... You shut the fuck up. You know, you don't, she doesn't need to be catcalled at. She's just trying to go to work or to the subway or get a cup of coffee or whatever. That is something that I can do. If my friends say, oh, fuck you, man, then they're not really my friends. And honestly, I'm at the point now where if people aren't going to share values about simple things like how to treat women with me, they're, they're not worth having a friendship with anyone. Uh, so that's something I can do. The other point I wanted to bring up, which Mindy reminded me of that Citizen Radio talks about a lot, is the thing about comedy comics that were going back after all those comments were basically from the followers of these comedians but the comedians themselves were like hey you know free speech and it, it, it can be kind of cathartic to talk about something as, as visceral and gross as rape if, if we make fun of it then we're actually lessening its you know its severity and the fact of the matter is that's not true because what you're doing is although you might think you're making light of it, what you're really doing is that there's other men in that audience. And we know the, the statistics, right? Chances are, for any given comic, there's probably at least one or two rapists in that the joke, making fun of it, is actually making them feel better about what they did. Oh, yeah, haha, it's funny what I did. It's not as serious what I did. Yeah, there's free speech. Common comedians can say what they want, but it's like, hey, what... What kind of message do you, as an, as an artist, as a comedian, are you really trying to convey out there? And the last thing we want to do is be condoning rape culture or rape or sexual assault in any way at all. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. I know I'm kind of blabbling. It's just this episode, there are certain topics that just really boil my blood. And to hear these faceless cowards go after somebody who is actually really just pointing out the simple fact about, you know, comedy and what its effects and what people say and how that reflects our culture. It's just, it's just asinine. But anyway, Jay, um, I appreciate you putting that stuff out there and I can't imagine all the hateful comments you get. So anyway, take care. Bye. Hi, this is Alan Corbin. I'm calling with an activist call to action for the folks who might be living in or near Detroit, Michigan. August 8th to 10th, 
NOMAS, the National Organization for Men Against Sexism, and HAVEN, Uproot. HAVEN is a domestic violence and sexual assault uh, prevention organization in Oakland County, Michigan. Is having a conference at Detroit, Michigan at the uh, uh, Doubletree downtown. The conference, Forging Justice, Creative, Safe, Equal, and Accountable Communities, um, is going to be happening August 8 to 10, 2013 at the Doubletree, Detroit. More information can be get at uh, nomas.org or contacting uh, haven-oakland.org. I've been part of this conference for a number of years, and I always enjoy this. Um, the diversity of workshops and the plenary speakers, including the folks um, who broke the uh, uh, Steubenville, Ohio rape case and all that sort of thing, uh, confirmed speakers there. And for folks in the middle of the country, up in Detroit, Michigan, that would be a wonderful place to see you. Thanks very much, and I hope to see you there. Hey, um, this is this is Q. I'm from Minneapolis, um, and I want to talk about the Trayvon Martin case real quick. I'm going to try and keep it as short as possible. Um, I'm black. I'm a young man, and I just, I can't, like, I literally have no words for it, you know? Like, I've never felt so, uh, I guess, afraid in my own country as I had before. Like, I understand racial injustice. I've had to grow up with it. I had to grow up with the inequality. Um, I had to have the talks with my mother of how to behave in front of the police and all of this other stuff. But to know that, like, my life isn't worth anything, like, so brazenly and so publicly, like, I thought this was something that only happened, like, you know, in history books from the 60s learning about the civil rights, you know what I mean? And people may not be holding picket signs to show their disdain for my existence, but hearing court cases like this shows that 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 type of mentality is still alive, and I just, I can't believe it, you know what I mean? I can be followed, somebody could see me, follow me, start something with me and kill me and just walk away, and I, I honestly don't know what to do with that. I love your show. Keep it up, and uh, I wish you the best in the future. So uh, have a good day. Hi, Jay. This is Jay. I'm in Atlantic City right now. I'm working here, and I just uh, found out about the George Zimmerman verdict. And uh, I realized after thinking about it for about an hour that this is a very good example I'm sorry to say, of white privilege, do you think that George Zimmerman would have shot Trayvon Martin if Trayvon Martin had turned out to be white underneath that hoodie? Thank you. I uh, love your show. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So the good news first is that in in the wake of the rape culture episode, I have not, uh, at least as of yet, received any uh, hateful, horrible, misogynistic, or, or otherwise similar uh, comments in response to that. So let's put that in the win column for now. And 
you know, and now the the George Zimmerman trial ended, and it didn't it didn't go the way uh, I would have liked it to, and the way a lot of people would have liked it to. The the, the people who I would wouldn't mind having a, a conversation with anyone who wish you know is glad that it went the way it did. I probably am not interested in um, in getting to know that person very well, and. So you know, I really there's not there's nothing that I can say on on this subject. I, you know, I feel terrible. I'll, the the moment I, I saw the news, my heart sank, and but I I had the very very clear uh, the clear feeling that my heart wasn't sinking for myself uh, because I knew that the result of that trial didn't really affect me very much. My heart sank knowing how deeply and profoundly it negatively affected the lives of so many people and and the injustice of the fact that it doesn't affect me in that same way and so you know that that's what i thought obviously i can't i can't pretend to to know what it's like to to feel that way and and so i won't so i, I can just say how it made me feel, and you know that I'm I'm on your side, and and um, try to at least understand the feelings uh, that that people may have on on the subject, even though I can't possibly have them myself. Um, I, I also just coincidentally, if you've been following the show for a while, you, then you might know that I've been reading uh, pretty slowly uh, Tim Wise's book, White Like Me. And just a couple of days before the verdict came down, I read this passage in his book, which was just timed really well. So in the passage, he, he's talking about how he was reminded of, quote, the white man in his mid-30s who I'd seen on national TV after the not guilty verdict in the 1995 criminal trial of O.J. Simpson, who lamented, quote, now I realize that everything I was taught in the third grade about this nation having the most wonderful justice system imaginable was a lie. Now he realized it? He had lived several decades believing the patriotic pep rally propaganda of his teachers, preachers, and parents. But because of OJ, he had concluded that the system might not be fair. Had he grown up around people of color, they could have set him straight on how not so wonderful the American system of justice was by the time he was 11. But he had had the luxury of believing the lie and then assuming that only the OJ case demonstrated a crack in the system. Everything in his world had been fine until OJ walked. Then, and only then, was it as if the world was about to stop spinning on its axis. So there you go. People see the world in profoundly different ways, and it's a complete fucking shame. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained